This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, I am excited to welcome Dr. Marta Perez to the show. Dr. Marta is a board-certified OBGYN, and she is here today to talk to us about the COVID vaccines, particularly vaccinating during pregnancy and in the postpartum period. You've asked for an interview on this topic, and I've heard you. I gathered many of your burning questions through Instagram stories and DMs and compiled them to talk them through with Dr. Marta today. We talk about how do vaccinations work, whether there's one vaccine over the other that is preferred for trying to conceive pregnant or nursing moms, whether the vaccine is safe for pregnant women, whether we should wait to get it until after when we're nursing or considerations for nursing, and also understanding what the long-term side effects could potentially be around vaccinations. This episode is meant to present you with the research and data that we currently have on the COVID vaccines for pregnant and nursing people. And as the data continues to develop, we may do a follow-up over time. Before diving into this interview, I want to share a really exciting announcement about Happy as a Mother Maternal Wellness Center. We are expanding. We are taking on an Alberta associate to serve the province of Alberta in maternal mental health. Joanna is a mom of two, has been working with mental health and trauma for the past 13 years, and is specialized in maternal mental health. She also has training in mindfulness, trauma, EMDR, and is a great addition to the Happy as a Mother team. If you live in Alberta or know moms who are in the province of Alberta, make sure to let them know that Joanna is taking clients. To learn more about Joanna, you can head to happyasamother.co slash wellness. That's happyasamother.co slash wellness. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Dr. Marta, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. I know that you are a busy mama, you're an OB-GYN, you, you know, are also surviving this pandemic like so many of us in the thick of it. So I really appreciate you taking the time to answer our questions today. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is such an important topic and people really just need some good quality information because there's a lot of bad information out there. Yeah. And I was letting my community know that you've got your little babe with you. They might hear some coos and little noises in the background. He's not feeling well today, but he's asleep on your chest and it's so sweet. It's like, it makes me like, oh, like swoon and remember those early days. But it also like brings a sense of stress for me too, because I can remember trying to juggle all those pieces. So we're going to see what we can get through today. And hopefully, hopefully he hangs in there with us. So yeah, hopefully he behaves. He's unusually fussy today. So we're just making the best of it. I'm with him. I'm also unusually fussy today. So, <laughs> so I had put in stories 
who would be best to speak to this, who mamas wanted to hear from. And your name came up time and time and time again. Um, and I know, and I follow you and I've seen some of the things that you've shared about this topic, but today we're talking COVID vaccination, particularly around pregnancy and nursing. Mm -hmm. I put up a question box in stories and I was actually a little blown away by the amount of questions, the amount of concern blown away. Yes. And no, like obviously when we're pregnant and nursing, I can very much remember those days. Like I didn't want to even take a Tylenol, right? Like a client was telling me that they were told they shouldn't eat strawberries or something. So when we talk uh, new medicine, I think it brings a lot of anxiety, a lot of overwhelm. So we're going to do our best to dive into some of these questions today and some of the research. Is there a, a piece of like preliminary information yeah. that you have around the vaccines that we can start with before we get into questions? Yeah, I think that's great. I think that I do want to talk about some background on the vaccines and then we'll really narrow into the how they apply to aspects of reproductive care. Okay. Um, so the background on the vaccines that are currently approved and being offered. So there's the mRNA vaccines, which are the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. There's also adenovirus vector vaccines and the Johnson and Johnson, as well as the AstraZeneca vaccine are two examples of adenovector vaccine. So these vaccines, and I am US based, I know you are Canada based. Yeah. I feel like with most recommendations, they're synchronous. I don't keep as up to date on the Canadian recommendations, but I will touch on them a little bit from what I've heard. Okay. But as far as the US, the vaccines underwent a completely normal application testing and review process before their emergency use authorizations, which can happen as soon as three months. The reason it happened quickly was because we broke down the barriers, mostly bureaucratic and financial barriers that typically happens in trials. So there weren't any steps that were skipped. It's just that they got to happen instead of one step, wait five months, next step in a trial. It was next step, pass, next step, pass, next step, pass etc. So there was nothing that was skipped or left off. Um, mm -hmm. They get to apply for full, not emergency use authorization, but full approval at six months. So we're going to be seeing that process unfold now too, as the months go by. And the mRNA vaccines came out first, first Pfizer and then Moderna. And we've seen extraordinarily safe profiles for these vaccines. There are the expected immunogenic side effects, feeling a little crappy after getting a vaccine. That is common. Not everyone gets it, but some people do. Mm -hmm. But we're really seeing a really, 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 really low risk of any serious adverse events, which is generally true of vaccines. But these seem to be even particularly low, which is great. Mm -hmm. Johnson & Johnson is an adenovirus vector vaccine that then got its approval. Again, seems extraordinarily safe from the trials, which have tens of thousands of participants in them. That's one of the things that I've actually heard is of the vaccine trials, we have the largest sample size because of the mass immunizations happening right now. Yes, you're exactly right. So part of even why it went so fast was the mass amount of people. That is one of the things that was like, not sped up, but was so great because most vaccine trials, they only have the funding to do it at like one site. And so they're recruiting people at one site. They only get a few hundred people at a time. So it takes years, months or years, but we had so many people sign up and so many sites that we were able to get the number of people in a really quick timeline. Another thing about timing and side effects, I see a lot of people saying, well, I don't know the long-term effects of a vaccine. Yes. And it's really important to point out that we don't expect vaccines to have long-term effects. 
over you know, our scientific and medical history, when new vaccines have come out, most vaccine side effects happen within some minutes to hours, things like feeling hot, getting fevers, days, or possibly weeks, really rare things like having uh, a thing where your immune system goes into overdrive and creates a problem. Those things happen over weeks, not over months and not over years. We've never looked back in all the vaccines over the last few decades and said, oh, there was a long-term impact of this vaccine. It's never happened. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's the thing is that there is a basis like, and again, like we're going through this conversation to answer people's questions to one, put out there the data so you can make an informed decision one way or the other for you, for yourself, for your family, for your baby, for your nursing baby, whatever. We're going to get into all of that, right? But we want to also like demystify some of these myths that are out there. And one of the things that I think that you're addressing here is like, well, we don't know what the long-term effects could be. It's so new. But like what you're saying is there is a depth of research on vaccinations, generally speaking, Mm -hmm. that gives a really, like gives a good backing to, or gives some, you know, like we're not going in blind here. It's not just like, oh, let's just do this, right? Yeah. Vaccines. There are tons of vaccines that have been in development over history. And some of them aren't approved because one, they don't work, right? Like why get a shot of something that just doesn't work? So it doesn't affect you. It's not going to move forward and doesn't work. Or if there are excessive side effects, it's not approved. So these vaccines have been approved. They're very safe. And the serious side effects, one other note on the serious side effects that could come up over weeks, things like your immune system overreacting, all of those serious side effects from vaccines happen to a higher degree when you get the disease itself. Hmm. Rare things like having um, problems with like muscles or nerves after your body experience, similar to like long haul COVID, except Hmm. you don't really see long haul symptoms with vaccines, but like a complication from having a viral illness is common in just society. And like occasionally those happen with vaccines, but much less than actually getting the virus. So these vaccines, I wouldn't, and when people bring up long-term impact, I just don't see a situation because in history, we've never had the way vaccines work. They're only in your system for a very short time and your immune system then does all the work. So then your immune system would be expected to do what it does in your normal body. So the long-term impact thing, I think, is really important to tell people there's not, there, I wouldn't expect there, and scientists and immunologists and lots of really smart people don't expect long-term impact from vaccines because we've never seen that, even when we were very early in our like vaccine, mm-hmm. you know, decades ago. The other really important background thing, there is absolutely no scientific, medical, or evidence for any concern about the vaccine infertility. That, that was a massive question. That was a massive question that came through. I'm trying to conceive, like we're trying to conceive, will my husband getting the vaccine impact his sperm or sperm production yeah. or whatever? There's absolutely no evidence that there could be impact on fertility from the vaccine at all. Hmm. So, you know, it was something that was kind of a viral misinterpretation of misinformation and it, there's absolutely no scientific basis for it. I've discussed this on my Instagram and um, like YouTube videos, but my friend who's Natalie Crawford, she's a fertility physician herself. She's also done several videos and podcasts and on her Instagram debunked it as well. So just clear the air there. If that's a concern of yours, just put it out of your mind. It's like saying you'll grow an extra toe due to a vaccine. It just doesn't make any sense at all. And there's no scientific reason that it it would. You had mentioned like how the vaccine works. And it's so funny. This is how my mind works is that I'm like recalling this really funny TikTok video that illustrates how vaccines work in my mind. And he's like, 
I don't know, he puts a fork down and he's like, when you get the vaccine, it like hunts all the forks so that if you come into contact with the virus again, it knows to collect all the forks and whatever. Yeah. Um, But how can we give a little debrief for those who really may not know how a vaccine works or what it is that's happening when we're going to get a vaccine? So there's just a little bit of understanding there. Vaccines work by priming the immune system and teaching it how to respond. So there's many different types of vaccines and methods, like the new ones are mRNA and adenovirus vector. Some other ones are inactivated vaccines. Some other ones are actually whole, what we call live vaccines um, that have mostly like dismembered and and non-functioning particles, but could have a little bit of live particle. Those aren't being used for COVID. Those are other types. However, the particular vaccine works, what it does is it's introduced to your body. Your body says, what is this foreign thing? And it wants to create antibodies against it. We hear a lot about antibodies. People who hadn't thought about antibodies are now thinking about them all the time. Antibodies get a big focus, partially because scientists can test for them in the blood. It's much harder to test for, that's called humoral mediated immunity, cell mediated immunity. So you also have these like memory cells that run around your system with the key to unlock the creation of antibodies. And we can't really test for those, but that's how vaccines work. There's a strong response initially with antibodies, but even after a while, you can reactivate a response. Our immune system is really complex and very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, The reason particularly for the COVID vaccine that we see a better immunity after getting vaccinated than after having an infection is because the immunity induced by the COVID vaccine is to the key the virus uses to open your cells. And so it's like having something to inactivate the shield on the virus versus when you have the virus, the virus is circulating in your body. There's a whole bunch of parts of the virus on the outside and the inside. And your body is just trying to create an immune response any way it can to a bunch of different pieces. It's almost like you have a bunch of little immune responses, but you don't have that one right off the bat, super strong immune response to the front of the virus, the spike protein, Mm. how it gains access to the cell. So another common myth is that, well, I had COVID, I don't need the vaccine but we're seeing that the immune response to the vaccine is much better, much stronger, much better organized than an immune response to having had COVID itself. So even if people have had COVID, it is still recommended that they get the vaccine. That is really fascinating. And I think that one of the things that is really sitting with me in in you talking about the vaccine and long-term effects is that the vaccine doesn't stay in our body long-term. I don't think that that's something that I realized before. And it's something that gives me a little bit more peace of mind, even thinking about it, because some medications, we might take them every day ongoing and they're in our system, but that's not what I'm hearing about the vaccine. Yeah. And when I always mention to people, like there's never been a documented case where there had been a long-term impact of vaccines, someone brings up thalidomide in pregnancy which was a medication that was taken over and over again and ended up causing birth defects. But vaccines and the way they work and a medication that's taken daily are completely separate things. They're not even comparable. So I don't think that that is something that we should be thinking about at all. It's not a repeated exposure of a medication ingested day in and day out. It's a different thing than that. And the other important part is that there is an alternative to not getting the vaccine And that is getting COVID, which we know has risks to pregnancy, which we can talk about. Well, it's interesting because that even like this is a conversation that they frequently have from a mental health perspective, the impact of, let's say, the illness of depression or anxiety on our body 
versus the impact of a medication that effectively treats those illnesses. And there's actually more research coming out talking about how the impact that depression has on our body is actually stronger and more like risky for a developing baby in utero than the medications that effectively treat the illness, right? Erica preached that. I say that all the time. We get patients, we get unfortunately get other doctors sometimes saying, oh, you shouldn't take an antidepressant in pregnancy for anxiety or depression. I completely disagree with that. I think every person in their situation is unique. One person may be able to not be on medication and feel really well, but other people struggling or feeling unwell while you're pregnant, you're exactly right, is not also healthy for you or your baby. Most common antidepressant medicines are actually very safe. And the ones that aren't, typically there all are alternatives. There's a range, but the most common ones like SSRIs are actually mm-hmm. very safe and mm-hmm. they're very small risk. We compare to the risk of untreated mood disorder. That's really makes someone suffer. So exactly. Anyways. Yeah, totally. That, but I completely agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I put up a call in stories and lots of questions came in and maybe we can try and like rapid fire through some of these. And I want to say that people are going to have different comfort levels on a scale. And I feel like as somebody who experienced postpartum depression and anxiety, even maybe perinatal, like while pregnant, for sure anxiety, maybe depression. I didn't even want to like work out the wrong way. So there is an element, I think from a mental health perspective, if we're already struggling with anxiety or we're struggling with, maybe we had had an infertility journey leading up to this pregnancy and this little being feels so just, we're so protective. And I want to respect and understand that. Uh, We also want to equip you with research and data to help, you know, ease your mind about some of these decisions you have to make, or maybe decide that you do it when you're breastfeeding and not when you're pregnant, whatever the decision is for you. We're going to try and give you as much of the information as possible so that you can make those well-educated decisions. Exactly. And I think that another important point I like to tell people on the making decision is you may not feel a hundred percent and you may not feel 0% about getting the vaccine. Yes. You feel 70%. You may feel 80%. You may feel 60%, but making the decision that's right for you and understanding that it may be a complicated decision, like not 100% is totally fine. Or you may change your mind. You may make one decision for right now if it's not to get it, but you may, a few weeks more may go by, something may happen. You may say, you know what? It's actually best for me to get it. So we agree. Give yourself a lot of grace with the decisions. Think about it. Talk to some people, but not to everyone because there's some wild misinformation out there. Well, and there's even some conspiracy theories. It's not on the list. It didn't come up, but I may even ask you about it because I come from a very evangelical Christian upbringing and I've seen lots of stuff about the vaccine. So I just have to mention that his little roll on the back of his neck is just like drawing me in. Like I wish I could just chew on it right now. He's so darn cute. Oh my gosh. Okay. Sorry, I digress. All right. So one of the biggest questions or most common questions that came in was, is there a vaccine of the, I think there's four that are approved right now that you would recommend over other vaccines for like expecting moms and then also nursing moms? At this point, there is not one vaccine that I would recommend over another. None of the vaccines that are currently available included pregnant people in the trials. And some people said, well, we shouldn't include pregnant people in trials. What if it's harmful? And the answer is, we already know COVID is harmful. We had months and months and months of pregnant people being exposed with no options. And if someone asked, well, who would sign up for an experimental trial on a vaccine? One, I was 15 weeks pregnant when they started the vaccine trials last year. I would have signed up. And in fact, 
30,000 American healthcare workers who were pregnant received the vaccine in December and January without any data. So definitely some of those people would have been in trials because we know the alternative is dangerous, right? Right. None of them did include pregnant people in the trials. Some of them are including them in the trials going forward. And we're looking back and getting retrospective data from the people who did get the vaccine in December and January and, and onwards. And so that first amount of retrospective data we have is going to be on the mRNA vaccines just because they were approved earlier and we're starting to see some evidence emerge from them. But even though we're seeing evidence emerge, that evidence has zero red flags about any negative outcomes for pregnant or breastfeeding people. And so far we're seeing positive data that pregnant people experience the same amount of like adverse effects as anyone who's like not pregnant, meaning that like fevers, chills, arm soreness type of stuff without an increase in any severe adverse effects. And that there's being an antibody response generated very strongly. And we're seeing antibodies in breast milk and in the umbilical cord that would pass to the baby. So we're Mm -hmm. seeing reassuring things coming from the mRNA vaccine. We don't have like a full amount of data yet. So I can't recommend one or the other. I expect we'll get more information about Johnson and Johnson vaccine for pregnant and lactating people in a few months, just as there's been time to look back. But even though we have that reassuring for mRNA, we don't yet have it for Johnson and Johnson. Based on the science of how the vaccines work, I wouldn't expect there to be red flags and I would expect there to be benefits just like with the mRNA. So again, we don't know. And because we don't know, I can't recommend one or the other. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like any of them at this point is a better alternative to COVID for a pregnant person is what I understand. Exactly, exactly. And if you've decided that you want to get the vaccine, you should get whatever one you can get soonest Mm -hmm. and most easily. You know, if that, if you're like this, the vaccine is absolutely right for me. I want to protect myself. You know, community transmission is high. Pregnancy is my underlying condition, or I have other ones, you know, then getting the vaccine that's available instead of waiting longer to get a vaccine that's not available, I would get the one that's available. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments, researching doctors, reading reviews, Making phone calls to book appointments? It's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists, with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com momwell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash momwell. ZocDoc.com slash momwell. Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. 
With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Mealtime with kids can be stressful. But with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals, it can be a lot easier. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. No worrying about ingredients and nutrition, no prep, no mess, and no cooking while wrangling toddlers. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Factor can even be tailored to your schedule. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Take the stress out of meals with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use code momwell50 to get 50% off your first box. there were a lot of questions at point blank, like, will this impact baby's development? Will this harm my baby if I'm expecting? Is there data or research on that? We talked about like the long term, but in the yeah. immediate short term, is there right. any concern there? So that's the big question. Like I said, we're seeing some emerging data from the pregnant people who chose vaccination in the US in December and January. The CDC said that according to VSAFE, about 30,000 people self-reported that they were pregnant. The CDC is going to be following those people. They're trying to call them, get their medical records, and get the records from their baby so we can expect to have that data. So far, they presented something in early March that they had contacted and got a hold of about 1,600 people. And in that group, they saw the same rate of pregnancy outcomes, neonatal outcomes, pregnancy complications. They saw the same amount that we'd expect in a normal population. Mm -hmm. Um, That wasn't a scientific study, so there weren't like statistics used for comparison, but the percentages looked about equal. So that's one reassuring thing. But we won't have data on all of that until like people who got the vaccines have then delivered and have right. their babies, and then we're able to publish. And I would say that as we're seeing like emerging reassuring data, that is the one biggest question that I think pregnant people have. They were seeing emerging data. Oh, it protects pregnant people. Well, it, the antibodies go, but they're like, is there a negative outcome for a fetus based on when the, getting the vaccine or getting the vaccine? We don't have data on that because of timing, right? Like December right. Was still only five months ago. And so we probably won't have that data for quite a while you know, from the beginning, even back in December, when it was the emergency use authorization was granted, the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine and the American College of OBGYN said, you know, when we think about how vaccines work, we don't expect there to be. But in terms of when the data will come, it will still be a few months off. Yeah. And that's what I was 
wondering about was the concerns based on previous, because like there's lots of other vaccinations, most of which I don't know, you can tell me, I'm assuming are approved for pregnant women. So like there has to be some like hypothesis around these things based on data, right? Erica, you're exactly right. And I would love to talk about this because I'm very passionate about vaccinations and pregnancy. When you are an OBGYN and you have a perfectly healthy person almost die or die or have a stillbirth because of the flu, it makes you extremely passionate about preventing that unnecessary suffering and outcome, Um, especially when so much vaccine misinformation is what led that person to not get something preventable. And then they nearly lost their life or lost their baby for something that was preventable. So pregnant people should get the flu vaccine every flu season, which starts in the fall and ends in the spring. So no matter what time you are in pregnancy, you should get the flu vaccine because when pregnant people get the flu, they have a higher risk of severe illness and death from the flu than a non-pregnant person. So they should be prioritized to receive the flu vaccine and they should get it as soon as they can in the flu season, right? doesn't matter what trimester you're in every year in about October ish is when the new flu vaccines come out. You know, every year the flu is a little bit different. The vaccine's a little bit different. Doesn't mean you won't get the flu, but it means if you get it, you're more protected than a pregnant person who didn't get it and less likely to have serious illness, death, or harm to your pregnancy. And the flu vaccine has been shown. I mean, thousands of people have done it. It's one of our big recommendations. And we have great data to show it's completely safe for mothers and babies and beneficial. Mm. No adverse effects. Again, trials for the flu vaccine going forward didn't include pregnant people because they pretty much never do, which we should amend trials. They include pregnant people, but we have tons of retrospective data from years showing absolute benefit. And I have seen Mm -hmm. it in personal practice. And then we have another vaccine called Tdap, which is the, you know, tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis. That vaccine is really about the pertussis part. Pertussis is a microbe that when adults get it, they might have an annoying cough or they might be asymptomatic, nothing severe. But when babies with very immature lungs get it, they can become very critically ill with the whooping cough. Kids are somewhere in the middle, right? Like school age, whatever. They'll have a more severe cough, but typically not life-threatening, but life-threatening for young babies. Because pertussis doesn't really have a seasonality to it, and it's kind of everywhere all the time, particularly because adults may not know they have it, and it's common for school-age children to run around having it. We want pregnant people to get it in the third trimester because the highest antibody response with the blood flow through the placenta is going to be highest a few weeks. You know, there's like a little range, like eight to 16 weeks or whatever after the vaccination. So we want to time it so that the baby is the most immune when it's born. So that's why we recommend that like 28 weeks and beyond. Not a huge deal if you get it a little earlier, you get it a little later, especially if you're timing it with the COVID vaccine, totally okay to get it at a different time or a little late. COVID is the biggest harm to everyone in our society right now. So it's okay to prioritize that vaccination. And we're recommending about two weeks between different vaccines right now. But that's we get at a point in pregnancy. So going forward with COVID, I mean, certainly right now we're in a pandemic with COVID. So it's like it's flu season, right? So Mm -hmm. we don't have a recommendation about trimester, another frequently asked question. We don't have a trimester recommendation. We don't have any data to suggest one trimester is better than the other or one trimester is worse than the other one, but we're in the middle of a pandemic, similar to how we're like in the middle of flu season. Mm -hmm. Going forward when COVID is not a pandemic, perhaps we might have a recommendation about timing. Perhaps it will be like flu season, or perhaps it'll be 
based on this really high antibody response at a certain time in pregnancy. I would suspect it would be more like flu just because it's a respiratory virus. So those are some things about vaccines in pregnancy. When people get Tdap in pregnancy, just go back to the benefits, there's less of a chance of newborns and infants being hospitalized and having serious lung problems due to pertussis, right? So mm-hmm. we know that vaccine is safe. We know it helps keep kids healthy and out of the hospital. So that's why it's recommended. Mm-hmm. There are other types of vaccines called live vaccines. And an example of that would be the MMR vaccine. And because they contain all of the necessary like ingredients for the microbe to become active, we don't want a pregnant person to get sick from the actual illness after getting the vaccine, which is only particular to live vaccines. That doesn't apply to flu, inactivated vaccines, or any of the COVID vaccines, the way that they work. None of them Mm -hmm. are live. And in general, we don't recommend live vaccines in pregnancy, but if they're given, we haven't seen really bad outcomes. It's more of those like, let's stay away from them because we can wait. But when someone like didn't know they were pregnant or something and they've been given there, there haven't been big negative responses. It's just one of those like, eh, if we can wait, let's wait for live. So the way the new COVID vaccines work is much more similar to the way that the flu vaccine and Tdap vaccine work. And we know that they're safe and we know that they prevent hospitalizations and serious illnesses for mom and or baby, depending on which one. And so, like, I mean, the hypothesis could be, and this is the data has to come in to prove all of this, but if this is how vaccines have worked for pregnant women and they get them, you know, third trimester or to protect mom maybe earlier, whatever that might look like, also, like, are good for mom and could potentially help babies. So, I mean, the data has to come through for the COVID vaccine, but that's what we've seen with similar types of vaccines I'm hearing. Even the flu vaccine. I didn't know that. And I have never been a flu shot person, but I may be converting that over (laughs) as we're talking. Yeah. And I absolutely think you should. And, you know, record amounts of flu vaccination this year, which is awesome because we don't deal with two pandemics. I'm hoping that carries forward, that people have realized we can prevent illnesses with vaccination and to really go get it. I'm like the first in line for flu vaccines every year. I've just never understood it. And I think that this whole COVID situation has really caused everybody to look more seriously at vaccinations. And the pediatrician always asks me every year, like, did the kids get their flu shots? And I'm like, "Mm, no, they didn't. But you know, Not for any particular reason other than I just I feel like it didn't have the knowledge to make a well-rounded, yeah. well-formed decision at the time. And it, it didn't feel so pressing, but I can see now how, mm-hmm. you know, these types of things happen. So, okay. So this has all been really helpful so far. So we're hearing that in utero good chances that it will pass on some immunity to baby still to be determined. And nursing, there's lots of questions that came in about nursing, Mm -hmm. like how much nursing, like how much milk does my baby need to be getting in order to pass on some of that immunity? Things like if I have a weaned toddler and a baby, should I be also trying to give toddler milk that has immunities in it? So can we unpack the nursing piece of this? Let's go back and talk about the immune system just for a second too. Okay. Before about the cell mediated immunity, we can't really like test for it, but we can pick up antibodies. So scientists can study antibodies and there's different types of antibodies and they kind of come out in your body, like peak and go down in different timeframes. So IgM is one of the first to peak. It's like the rough draft kind of, and then it kind of quickly goes away. That one doesn't cross the placenta and we don't usually see it in breast milk. So it's really for the person who had the vaccine. 
IgG is a more long lasting one. It takes a little bit longer for your body to ramp it up, but it also sticks around longer, you know, weeks to months, and it can be reactivated if your body says it's time to mount a response against this virus. Mm. IgG crosses the placenta like crazy. Like you're as a pregnant person, you are constantly giving IgG to all the stuff that you've had in your life to your baby, right? So whatever IgG is in your blood at the time, you can pass on to your baby and it sticks around a little longer. It lasts like weeks to months in the baby's circulation, which is great. IgG is present in breast milk. The degree to which IgG can help a baby's immune system is not well known. So when I say that, there's two things. It may just be that it gets to the baby's stomach and it gets broken down and it really isn't super helpful. Or it maybe could be helpful in ways that we just don't understand. So it's kind of a question mark on how important IgG through breast milk is, but it's definitely important while pregnant. IgA is a type of antibody that your body preferentially makes when it has had an infection in a mucous membrane. So when you have When I get a cold, my body is going to pump up IgA because it also secretes it in that same spot. So it's like has something to do with location as well. Secretory IgA, which is the type of IgA that we really see in breast milk, is what is probably responsible from the immune benefits of breast milk because it coats the baby's, you know, oropharyngeal cavity. And then, you know, babies, they're always spitting up and spurting stuff. So as they do that, it probably coats their respiratory tracts as well. Breastfeeding science is just so far away from where it should be. I wish that there was so much more attention to breastfeeding science. But what we see in terms of breastfeeding and immunity is that exclusively breastfed small infants, six months or less, compared to non-exclusively or formula-fed infants, six months or less, the degree of protection from um, respiratory infections is about a third So it's there, but it doesn't mean that breastfed babies never get sick. And it doesn't mean that halfway breastfed and half formula fed babies get half as much. And then formula fed babies only get sick all the time. So there is without a doubt immune benefits to breastfeeding. And there are other benefits to breastfeeding, but it's not a black and white picture. Mm -hmm. It's very complex. So when we talk about how much protection is happening with COVID and COVID vaccination, we are starting to see some studies of breast milk showing that there's both anti-spike protein IgG and anti-spike protein IgA is present in breast milk, which is great. The degree to which it protects, let's just take the most pure example, an exclusively breastfed infant. The degree to which it protects them is not really known because we just haven't been testing infants for COVID. Somebody's waking up. He's He's Um, doing the head bob, like the bopping where it's like, He's looking for mama. He's like, are you talking about breastfeeding? (laughs) See how much I can hold him off. So the degree to which it offers protection, like clinically, like in real life, we don't really know. But we're seeing that there are antibodies in breast milk, which is great. And then that's like the most pure example, right? Like the zero to six exclusively breastfed versus a formula fed. What is the difference in infection? That would be like the most kind of pure scientific way to maybe look at it. Then going forward, babies start eating more, right? And they might also get breast milk. Or in real life, some babies are, you know, inclusively breastfed where they get some breast milk, but we're also supplementing with formula, you know, supply is an incredibly difficult thing. And then babies start eating and toddlers may or may not nurse. If they nurse, it's a very small percentage of their calories and their intake. So 
we don't know the degree of protection. Now, is it likely to be harmful to give a toddler breast milk? No, in human history, toddlers drink breast milk. So I don't think you would do your toddler a disservice by giving them breast milk, but I don't know how much that small one to two times a day, small amount of breast milk really matters to them. We also don't know that toddlers, the way their immune system works, if they kind of use the antibodies from mother's breast milk the same way that young babies do. Like they may have outgrown that type of immune function, do their own immune system work. So it's a big question mark. Mm -hmm. And I, by saying that, I don't want to discourage people, but I also don't want to give a sense of false hope or certainly make someone who is not able to breastfeed or chooses not to breastfeed have any guilt that they're doing their child of any age a disservice by not being able to give them breast milk. So, you know, breast milk, I don't think is harmful. But I, I can't in good conscience say it's making a huge difference. I just think it is reassuring for people who are breastfeeding, who want to get vaccinated, that we're seeing really good antibody response in breast milk. And I think the potential for protection is absolutely there. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's really interesting. And there were a lot of concerns of like, will this impact supply getting the vaccine? Things like that as well. Yeah, we haven't seen studies on that. Again, theoretically, I wouldn't think so. I received the vaccine. Um, I was in my first week postpartum. I tried, oh my goodness. <laughs> back up. I am a healthcare worker. So I was in the first rollout and I was pregnant. I was in my third trimester and my institution was getting the vaccine in December. So I was like, I need this thing. Like I felt it was, for me, it was not a complicated decision. I studied how mRNA works. I know about vaccines. And I was like, I will get that vaccine first. My healthcare facility decided that they were going to prioritize people of an older age getting the vaccine and then younger. So like being in my thirties, I'm in the younger group. And I was joking that I was going to like put on a wig and like grab a cane (laughs) to try to pretend I was older because I wanted to get it so bad. So fast forward, they're rolling out 60 year olds, 50 year olds. Meanwhile, I go into preterm labor and have an early baby. So the first opportunity I had to get the vaccine was about one week postpartum was the first available appointment. At that point, he was exclusively breastfed. And certainly for my second dose, he was exclusively breastfed. I took Advil just like 12 hours after I got the vaccine, just to kind of prevent feeling really bad, you know, Mm -hmm. and I felt mild symptoms. But um, I think that there's not really data to say it would increase affect supply. I say affect because, you know, anecdotally, some people have been like, did anyone feel like their supply increased with getting the vaccine? You know, I've seen questions like that too. So I I haven't seen any data. I would say I don't think it would increase or decrease supply, but certainly we don't know. Preventing yourself from feeling really crappy though. So just treating if you feel badly with Tylenol or ibuprofen is fine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I got the sense in the question box that I put up on Instagram that there was a lot of like how many feeds if baby needs to be exclusively fed or if we can give toddler feeds and And like, I understand from a mental health perspective that as moms, we want to try and do whatever we can to protect our children, right? Like we want to do what we can to give them immunity. And if there's something within our power to try and do, we want to do it. And I appreciate that you say that, you know, you can, it's not going to hurt, but we also don't want to, I don't know, there is this sort of like, breast milk cures all kind of mentality sometimes. And, and for the moms, many of whom I work with who really grieve not being able to breastfeed. Exactly. I think it's so exciting that we're seeing antibodies in breast milk. Don't get me wrong. I'm thrilled about that. I, I I'm, I'm thrilled, but I don't want to use that. We're seeing antibodies in breast milk to overstate 
the amount of protection, which it could be there, but I don't want to make moms who don't or can't breastfeed or have chosen not to breastfeed, or I don't want to make them feel guilty that they're not doing something or feel less than, because we really don't know the degree of protection, especially once we get past the early infancy period. And that's simply because we don't know about what kind of immunity, you know, there's some evidence that there's some immune benefit to breastfeeding, you know, past six months for sure. But it's not, again, a hundred percent, zero percent thing. It's like a, you know, decreasing by 25% or 20%, et cetera. So it's just a mixed picture that we don't have a full amount of answers to. Yeah. Okay. We're gonna maybe do one or two more questions because he's been so good for us this whole time. We got most of our questions in because I know that he's been really patient for us. And I'm trying to just think, is there anything else that comes up often for you when talking with women? Because a lot of the things are about nursing, about impacts on babies. Uh, Another one that came up is like, will our children be able to be vaccinated? Do we know anything about that? And I don't know if you have any any thoughts or, or information about children's vaccines. So I do know that Pfizer is doing vaccine trials in infants as young as six months. Oh, wow. Yep. And so we're going to see over the next few months the results from those trials. I actually tried to sign him up for it thinking, you know, he'll be six months this summer. We could join a trial this summer but they had overwhelming interest. And so they're not currently recruiting right now. So (laughs) we're definitely going to see the results of those trials of offering the vaccine for children um, in the future. So it could be definitely a part of childhood vaccination. I think it's a little too early to say like what the future of both the coronavirus 19 pandemic and illness, the picture with variants and our current vaccines is going to look like. And there's a lot of different ways it could look. It could be a instead of just getting your flu shot every fall, you now get your flu and COVID shot, you know, and they tweak it every year the way they tweak the flu vaccine every year. It could be something that once you got one time was really great and you only need a booster, like, you know, for tetanus, you'll need a booster every 10 years, Mm -hmm. um, booster every two years or something. It's just a little early to tell what exactly is going to pan out about how we'll manage to keep, hopefully come out of this pandemic and then keep it from returning to being pandemic proportions. I love following it for everyone on social media, both Jessica Malate Rivera and Laurel Bristow, who is at King Gutter Baby. They have awesome general vaccine virus epidemiology knowledge. And I really follow them for a lot of that stuff. As mm-hmm. a lowly OBGYN, you know, I'm a not the most qualified person. I am not as eloquent discussing these topics, but it's definitely like we're gonna see what's gonna happen as things change. To me, has been a really exciting and awesome time. Like it had been a very stressful year. And as these vaccines were coming out, I was just so elated and excited. I have the picture on my Instagram of getting my vaccine. I was crying tears of happiness. I just was this feeling of hope. And I recognize though, that for lots of people may not feel that way. They may feel a little hesitant about vaccination. So that's why I feel like it's so important to give information because not everybody feels like I do who thinks it's like the coolest time in science and immunology and so proud of what our society has done creating these really awesome, safe, effective vaccines. But I hope that by educating people, they start to feel the way I do about it. Yeah. Well, and that maybe brings up the last piece that we can touch on today is, and I come by this honestly, because, you know, this is how I was raised. I grew up in a lot of this is really like conservative Christian views or different types of views, Christian or non-Christian. Um, ones that I've heard friends talk about are like the use of um, like fetuses in vaccines, 
and different pieces like that, that are just controversial. Yeah. So there are just to kind of talk about the scientific and vaccine creation process. So when we're testing to see if something is going to be one safe and two effective, we have to pretend that it's in cells, right? There are certain checkpoints we have to get to before we can start injecting people. And so there in science are several different types of perpetual cell lines. Now, one of them came from aborted fetal tissue from decades ago. I think it was the 1970s, I believe. I don't know the exact date, but decades ago, there was fetal tissue taken from you know, an elective termination procedure, and it created this cell line. You don't need any more fetal tissue. It was created decades ago, and now it's just cells, okay? It's just cells that are pluripotential human cells. In the same vein, there's a pluripotential cell line called HeLa cells that were taken from the cervical cancer of a woman named Henrietta Lacks. There's a wonderful book called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Also Mm. moral concerns there. Her or her family didn't know that those cells were created and that they've been used millions of times to create tons of our other, I don't know if they're specifically using vaccines, but tons of medical and science innovations, you know, and she's never received any compensation. She actually died of that cancer. So I don't at all question people who have a concern about the morality or ethics about things that happen in the use of things we use now. However, the type of cell line from the aborted fetal tissue is a specific cell line, and we know which vaccines are used to create those. So that cell line was not used with either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine creation at all. So if you have a concern about fetal tissue from decades ago being used to create a cell line, that does not apply to you receiving the mRNA vaccine. I believe, and I, I wish I knew for sure. I'm so sorry. I believe it was used for J&J and I can get back to you so you can correct your followers. I believe it was used for J&J, but people like the Pope who, you know, the Catholic church is vehemently against abortion. The Pope came out and said, the loss of human life and suffering due to COVID-19 is so catastrophic. It is so much more important than any concern about fetal tissue from decades ago. So he basically said, you should get any vaccine that's offered to you to prevent human suffering and loss of life because this doesn't encourage terminations of pregnancy now. I mean, it's just a cell line from decades ago. Yeah. Which are all things that people like ethically factor into, like there's so many considerations here. And I think that we can wrap it up like this. It's like, there are so many levels of risk and consideration for each and every individual situation. Some people like yourself on the front lines exposed to COVID and exposed to influenza and exposed all of the time versus maybe somebody like myself or others who can work from home and eliminate risk while they're pregnant potentially, right? Like there's a whole range and variety. So if we can eliminate that risk and be at home and not get the vaccine until we're nursing, and that is an option for us then that's what works for our situation, but not every situation looks like that. And so this is really a conversation for you and your partner to have, to weigh out the ethics, to weigh out the risk, to weigh out, you know, the pros and cons of these situations. But we did our best today to really summarize what we know of the information and offer so that you can make that educated or well-rounded decision. And I love what you opened with was that we're never maybe going to feel a hundred percent sure in our decision because there is some holes in some of the data, but there might be enough data that has you feeling 60% or maybe you really have the flexibility to change some things around in your routine in your life to be at home until you give birth or something like, you know, those are decisions for your family to make. Exactly. And we, at this point, 
the take home message from like the American College of OBGYN, the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, our US CDC and FDA has been, we don't yet have data, though we believe the risks to be low of the vaccine. We know that the risks are high of the virus. And so every pregnant person in lactating should make the decision that is best for them and have access to vaccination and make the decision best for them and should be supported no matter what their decision is. Right. That is my my take home line. I hope we in our conversation helped give you the power to make the decision, but the bottom line is that right now there's not from the big governing bodies there's not one recommendation that applies to everyone. Everyone gets to make the decision that's right for them. I do think probably the recommendation will end up changing one way or the other, but right now we don't have it and that's okay. And so Everyone should support you no matter what your decision is, and you should get good information from reliable sources, people like me, American College of OBGYN, I'm sure the Canadian OBGYN Society as well, mm-hmm. your healthcare provider that can kind of just help make the decision that's right for you. Yeah. And and it is a lot like I, so I did get my first round of vaccine. We haven't got the second dose yet. And I had a lot of anxiety about it. And I am not a pregnant or lactating person right now. But then on the heels of it, felt so much relief. And we're going through a third wave in Toronto right now. They just declared a state of emergency. We're on stay-at-home order for the third time. And the COVID count was like 6,000 for the province today. And it feels scary. And there are lots of businesses. Yeah, there are lots of small businesses that are going under because of lockdowns. And the one thing that I do feel differently about this time versus this time last year is that they're distributing vaccines, albeit we're, they're not really <laughs> doing it as quickly and efficiently as some other countries, but it is on the horizon. Yeah. And um, for me personally, I know that that gives me a lot of hope, but I have friends and family members who are, are really you know, undecided or have strong opinions otherwise, but... I know, which makes me sad because, you know, talking about pregnant people and lactating people, I'm like, you know, make the decision you weren't included in the trials. But if you're not pregnant and you weren't lactating, you were included in the trials. And we know the vaccine is super effective and super, super safe. So when people like that feel hesitation, it shows how much a bunch of, you know, anti-vaccine sentiment has put so many people at harm and just made them feel emotionally harmed getting a vaccine, it's really, I feel like so unfortunate and difficult because in a purely science and medical world, there wouldn't be any hesitation for those people. The trial data is pretty powerful about the safety and efficacy of these vaccines. So, And another thing that, that often comes up with vaccines and not the COVID vaccine, but vaccines in children, and we're not there yet, and maybe that'll be a whole nother episode that we have maybe when they're doing that with children, is the risk of autism or these other types of things, which are these narratives that have been really entrenched through, you know, certain communities and things so that. Harmful. I know. Right. And so knowing that we could have this conversation about the actual science, I feel so just even how the vaccine isn't like an ongoing exposure of a medication, like these little things that you can present to us that just like completely open my mind in a different way to make those decisions. And I know for sure that if I was pregnant or expecting, I would expecting or nursing, I would have anxiety, but I trust and leaned into my providers during that time to know what other types of medications I could and couldn't take and what I could safely do. So mm-hmm. 
Thank you for coming and sharing your knowledge today. And your little guy hung in there and I don't know how you're multitasking so eloquently, but oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, behind the scenes, you can't see like the, the all the stuff that's on the counter, you know? <laughs> I hear you, but I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for this. And we'll see what happens. And if we do a follow-up when we've got more data in, in a few months yeah, time. That would be awesome. I'd love that. It's an exciting time for science, at least that's for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. A good time for hope too. Yeah. Thank you so much. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description. Or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happyasamother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, Mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job. Settling is not an option for Everything me. I desire is already mine. What if you can have it all? <laughs> because every day is for the girls. Hello, hello. Welcome to For the Girls podcast, hosted by Victoria Alario, For the Girls Who Want More. Listening to For the Girls will have you ready to raise the bar, stop settling for the bare minimum, and start believing you can have it all, and step into the 2.0 version of you. You can catch a new episode of For the Girls every Monday across all podcast platforms. Until next time, girls.